Our scripture reading this evening is taken from the book of the second book of Chronicles, Second Chronicles chapter fifteen. Second Chronicles fifteen. This is the central chapter of three that deal with King Asa. Asa, the son of Abijah, of course the son of Rehoboam. And whereas Abijah was a, a bad king who did a good thing, Asa is spoken of as a good king. Second Chronicles 14.2, Asa did was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He was a king who spearheaded a reformation, and when he was attacked by a huge army, God gave him the victory. And so, Second Chronicles chapter 15. Now the Spirit of God came upon Azariah the son of Oded. And he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For a long time Israel has been without the true God, without a teaching priest and without law. But when in their trouble they turned to the Lord God of Israel and sought him, he was found by them. And in those times there was no peace to the one who went out, nor to the one who came in. But a great turmoil was on all inhabitants of the lands. So nation was destroyed by nation and city by city, for God troubled them with every adversity. But you be strong and do not let your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. And when Asa heard these words and the prophecy of Oded the prophet, he took courage and removed the abominable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin, and from the cities which he had taken in the mountains of Ephraim. And he restored the altar of the Lord that was before the vestibule of the Lord. Then he gathered all Judah and Benjamin, and those who dwelt with them from Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon. For they came over to him in great numbers from Israel when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. So they gathered together at Jerusalem in the third month, in the fifteenth year of the reign of Asa. And they offered the Lord at that time seven hundred bulls and seven thousand sheep from the spoil they had brought. Then they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart and with all their soul. And whoever would not seek the Lord God of Israel was to be put to death, whether small or great, whether man or woman. Then they took an oath before the Lord with a loud voice, with shouting and trumpets and ram's horns. And all Judah rejoiced at the oath. They had sworn with all their heart and had sought him with all their soul. And he was found by them, and the Lord gave them rest all around. Also he removed Marcha, the mother of Asa the king, from being queen mother, because she had made an obscene image of Asherah. And Asa cut down her obscene image then crushed and burned it by the brook Kidron. But the high places were not removed from Israel. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was loyal all his days. He also brought into the house of God the things his father had dedicated, and that he himself had dedicated silver and gold and utensils. And there was no war until the thirty-fifth year of the reign of Asa. And may God bless the reading of his holy word. Our text this evening is found in the chapter that we read, Second Chronicles chapter 15 and verse 15. And all Judah rejoiced at the oath. They had sworn with all their heart and sought him with all their soul, and he was found by them, and the Lord gave them rest 
all around. Seek and you shall find, the Lord said. And here we have a great example of God's people seeking his face. God's people coming again unto him. As we've noted before, Chronicles has a great theme, that of looking back to go forward. Looking back at the past, how God worked. And learning from that, how to go forward, what God would have his people do and what God himself will do as things go forward. Here... We see reformation and faith both linked together and also we see reformation and faith as ongoing things. Not just one time this has happened, but it goes on happening. Faith, Christian faith, has a beginning but never ceases. The reformation of the church is not something we can just look back on, but it's something that there must always be that determination to follow in God's steps. Also here we see the idea of consecration and of seeking God. Indeed, it may be said that the, the sort of sub subject, the subheading of the Asa section here, these three chapters, is seeking God. Seeking God. And here we have seeking God in answer to his word. And therefore it is not a seeking God that begins with man, but that begins with God. And so we see first of all here the call to reformation. We see secondly the covenant of reformation. And thirdly the consecration of reformation. Call, covenant and consecration. And first we see the call. The call. Now, as with the Gospels, it's not always the case that when we read the history of a particular king, that this is necessarily in exact chronological order. What the Chronicle has done is he has made a selection. These are the things from the history of Judah that he would have us learn. And here, it may be that this is actually set before what we read in chapter 14, or it may be afterward. But the reason for repeating this is that the call to reformation is one that comes from God. And reformation is first of all a spiritual thing. It is first of all a turning to God. It's not what is done. We look back very rightly and properly at the reformation of the 16th century. At Martin Luther and John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, Cranmer, Latimer, Ridley. These great heroes, these reformers, and of course there are many other reformers. And we look back and we see what they did and we must recognise that what they did first of all was a seeking the Lord. That reformation is spiritual, it's inward. It's Martin Luther's rediscovery of the grace of God that is an inward thing and it is a response to the word of God. It's no accident that Martin Luther was a professor of sacred scripture. And that Martin Luther's great discovery is the word of God that says the just shall live by faith. 
It's no accident that the Reformation saw a flowering of the writing of commentaries on Holy Scripture. It is a response to God's word. And so here we see Asa's Reformation as a response to God's word and an ongoing response to God's word. The Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded. Now it's very unusual in the Bible to find a prophet saying nice things to a king. Normally the prophet's work with the king was to confront him. But here Azariah is given a good message and yet in that message there is an implied warning. The Lord is with you while you are with him. It's not a question of is God on my side, it's am I on God's side. Being a Christian is being on God's side. It's not looking around and saying, is God on my side? It's Again, it's that man whom Joshua saw outside the walls of Jericho and asked, are you on our side or their side? And he said, neither. I am the commander of the Lord's armies. In other words, the important thing, Joshua, is not whether I'm on your side, but whether you're on my side. Are we on the Lord's side? The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found. God says, seek me and you shall find me. The Lord Jesus Christ says, seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened unto you. Prayer is a matter of seeking God. Knowing that God answers his people. Knowing that God cares for us. It's a response to God's word. And as I say, it's an ongoing response. Now, Azariah has a little sermon to preach. And his little sermon has as its text Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 29. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 29. But from there you will seek the Lord your God. And you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. Speaking about Israel in a a low condition. And you will seek and you will find. And he points them back now. From verse 3 we have a little mention of history. And you can quite see why the chronicler has put this bit of history. Preaching about history in his book, which is a book preaching about history. Azariah is pointing them back to the days of the judges. The days when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. For a long time Israel was without the true God. They wandered this way and that. They wandered after idols. They wouldn't listen to the priests. They wouldn't listen to the law of God. But when in their trouble has happened again and again. They turned to the Lord God of Israel and sought him. He was found by them. They sought. They found. He blessed. And then they wandered away again. And then God afflicted them and then they came back to God again. And so it's this ongoing work, this ongoing seeking the Lord. Day by day we seek him. And therefore be strong and do not let your hands be weak for your work shall be rewarded. And this language of letting your hands be weak is this language of being discouraged. This language of keeping on and 
becoming discouraged. And what's the answer to discouragement? It's coming back to God. It's coming back to Christ, to back to the cross. Our encouragement is God himself. If we look at ourselves, if we look at our work, it's very easy to become discouraged. But look to God. For God says, seek and you shall find. And so Asa is encouraged, look to God, look back. Look at what he's done in the past. Look at the pattern of history, of God's people. There's a time, there are times of declension. There are times of revival, times of awakening. Look back. And remember the important thing is seeking God. It's not seeking revival. It's seeking God. And this here is set particularly in this setting of Reformation. When Asa heard these words, he took courage and did what? He removed the abominable idols. He heard and he sought reformation, the reformation of the people of God. God says, return. And he returns. He restores the altar of the Lord. So we have both the, the negative and the positive. The negative side of things is getting rid of what is unbiblical. Getting rid of the the idols, the false gods. The positive side of things is restoring the altar of the Lord. And of course, the altar is the place of sacrifice. The altar is the place of atonement. The altar puts atonement front and centre. Christianity is first and foremost a redemptive, no, the redemptive faith. It's about redemption, it's about what God has done in Christ. It's not about what we do first and foremost. It's about putting the the focus in the right place. The focus is on Christ. The focus is on the cross. The focus is on God's dealing with our sins. Because if the focus isn't there, the focus will end up somewhere it shouldn't be. It will end up very often on what we do. And when the focus is put on what we do, then everything is distorted, everything is changed, everything is what it ought not to be. One of the great problems of the Middle Ages was this deflection, really, from Christ to Mary and the saints. It began with a view of Christ's deity, Christ as God over all, Christ as the judge of all the earth. All of which is true, but it is only one aspect of who he is, and what was missed was the point of Christ as the sympathizing high priest. The loving Christ who loves his people. The love of God got very largely missed. And so the idea was, well, Mary is a a mother. She therefore can sympathize. Christ is fully human. He can sympathize with us. And therefore the Reformation, the Mariolatry, the excessive veneration of the Virgin Mary had to be replaced, had to be taken away first of all, But then also the emphasis on the cross had to come in. Because if you just have a negative, then you simply lose something. 
It has been said that the heresies and false teachings very often reflect the things that the church should be saying but isn't saying. If there is too much emphasis on the deity of Christ, then you lose emphasis on his humanity and people start looking for that human sympathy somewhere else. If there is not enough teaching on the deity of Christ, then people see just the humanity. And then their adoration and worship for Christ disappears and is they have to worship the Father, of course he's God, but if Christ is but a man, you cannot worship a mere man, that's idolatry. And what happened with the Middle Ages was this losing sight of the sympathy of Christ, and therefore Mariolatry comes in. And so, Mariology is done away with, but there must be the lifting up of Christ himself, the glorification of Christ who loves us, the glorification of the cross. We must go to the cross and see the cross central, as, the, as one has put it, the pulpit of God's love. But the cross says, God is love, In this is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Because another thing that can happen is that people get confused as to what love is. And you end up with a kind of just general benevolence. And the idea, well you get a very weak and insipid love. A love that is just a mere sentimentality and has no real connection with people. A love that isn't redemptive. There are many great stories of redemptive love, but the greatest is the true story of the Saviour who came from glory. We have in the Bible that great picture of Hosea, who finds his wife, his estranged wife, having having to sell herself into slavery, and he buys her back even though she's been unfaithful. And that's a picture of the love of God to his people. A redemptive love. A love that does and dares. A love that is exciting and glorious. This month, the month of February 2023, is the centenary of a little book called Christianity and Liberalism by J. Gresson Machen. Machen was a professor at Princeton Seminary in the United States. And... He writes this book against Protestant liberalism. And one of his great charges against Protestant liberalism is this. Liberalism is boring. Liberalism has a boring, dull, fake Jesus. Christianity has the exciting, thrilling, wonderful, real Jesus. Liberalism basically preaches man and him him improved, as someone has put it. Christianity preaches Christ and him crucified. Liberalism preaches a a mere love of sentimental complacency on God's part. That people will get better, things will get better. And one of the things that, of course, 1923, you've got by now the waning of the enthusiasm and idealism that just followed the First World War, the idea, we will build a, a world fit for heroes. Did they? No, they didn't. Now, during the COVID pandemic, we had people talking and 
still occasionally do talk about a great reset, a great opportunity, a better world. What do we see? Not that. And what happens with this false man-centered idealism is it lets people down. It always lets people down. But God doesn't let people down. Christ doesn't let people down. The Bible doesn't say things will get better. The Bible says God is over all. The Bible looks human sin in the face. Because this was another problem with liberalism. It still is that liberalism has too soft a view of humanity. That people are basically all right. What have we seen in the 20th century? Drenched in blood. What do we see? 21st century. Drenched in blood. We see human sin everywhere. And Christianity says, yes. What's the answer? Liberalism says, be, be nice people. Christianity says, God sent his son into the world to die for sin, for you and for me. It is thrilling, it is exciting, it is the romance of eternity. Reformation. Christ at the centre, the altar at the centre. He restored the altar. We set up Christ. We preach Christ and him crucified. The call, the call to return, the call to seek God, the call to come to the altar, the place of sacrifice, to come to the feet of Christ. And secondly, we see the covenant, the covenant. The king begins the work, and then he gathered all Judah and Benjamin and those who dwelt with them from Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon. So he gathers all God's people. All God's people are to be involved It's not just the elite doing their thing. It's not just people from one part of God's kingdom. It's all God's people are involved. Because all God's people must seek his face. So they gather together and they begin, again verse 11, they began with sacrifice. The only way that we can come to God is by sacrifice. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Not the sacrifice of bulls, not the sacrifice of sheep. All that blood that could never take away sin, as the Apostle tells us. But Christ, the heavenly Lamb, takes all our sins away. A sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. Christ died for our sins. We can come to God because Christ has died. We don't have to do what the picture in Israel was. You've got to find an animal and find a priest and then kill the animal. And then, no, the priest has come. He is Christ. His offering is not some animal he's found or someone's brought to him. His offering is himself. He offered himself to the Father through the eternal spirit. And because of the sacrifice, we can come to him just as we are. Not to stay as we are, but that he may change us and transform us. And they entered into a covenant. 
they entered into a covenant. That is to say, they declared, we will do this thing. We will do these things. We will seek the Lord with all our heart and all our soul. And also they said, those who do not seek the Lord God of Israel were to be put to death. Quite a serious approach, one that shocks us today. What does it mean to us? Well, it means to us much as it meant to the people who read Chronicles when it was first published. It means not execution, but excommunication. Excommunication, putting out of the church. Well, who is to be put out of the church? Those who will not seek the Lord their God. Those who persist in ungodliness. That the person that we think of most with this mention is that, that man that Paul speaks of in Corinth, who was who had his father's wife, that's the language he uses. That man who was in an immoral relationship with his stepmother. A man who gloried in it apparently. Not a man who... And of course the the thing is, there are things you can do accidentally. But you don't do that accidentally. You can't accidentally be in a relationship with your stepmother. Not like that. You can't accidentally do what that man was doing. He knew what he was doing. And he would carry on with it. And essentially excommunication is a declaration as here... You are not the Lord's. In the church it exists for the purpose of saying to to somebody who repeatedly refuses to abandon a wicked course of action. Just saying, as far as we can tell, you're not a Christian. As far as we can tell, you're not a believer at all. It's not a matter simply of Somebody who was struggling and suffering. Oh, if somebody's struggling and suffering, the Lord's Supper's for them. The Lord's Supper is for the, the man who, a woman who says with that father in the Gospels, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That's the sinner with a high hand that excommunication comes. Even as these who rebelled against God, they would not see God. What does that mean? They were worshipping idols. They were idolaters and yet they were members of physical Israel. What was to be done? There's only one answer to put them out. And they were indeed to be devoted to destruction, to be put to death. There's a serious element to that covenant commitment. We will seek the Lord. And we will seek that his church may be indeed a church of believers. A church of those who follow God. And indeed believers come in all shapes and sizes. And faith can go from little faith to bigger faith. But it's all to some eventually big faith because it's in a great God. Our faith can be very little. can be that bruised reed, that smoking flax. And Christ cradles it and protects it. And the church cradles and protects the weak in faith, the struggling, the doubting. But it's the high-handed unbeliever 
The one who wants to corrupt the church and to make it something it cannot be, to make it unfaithful to the Lord who is disciplined here. And so we see the covenants. And thirdly, we see the consecration. Consecration is a joyful thing, first of all. They took an oath before the Lord with a loud voice, with shouting and trumpets and ram's horns. That's a joyful thing to be doing. And all Judah rejoiced at the oath. Dr. Watts says in one of his hymns, religion never was designed to make our pleasures less. Different, yes. Purer, yes. But not less. Christianity isn't supposed to make long-faced people, people who are always unhappy. It's supposed to make joyful people. Come we that love the Lord, says Dr. Watts at the beginning of that hymn, and let our joys be known. We rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. The point about putting away the unrighteousness here is that it's that that makes people miserable. Sin makes people miserable. And God makes people joyful. They, they sought him with all their soul and he was found by them. And the Lord gave them rest all around. Peace. The peace of God that passes all understanding. Being justified by faith, says the Apostle, we have, present tense, we have peace with God. We have peace with God. And we are then given an example of consecration. The example of Asa. Asa had a grandmother. Marcha, she spoke of him in verse 16 as mother because Hebrew has no word for grandmother. In Hebrew, if you're talking about a male ancestor, he's your father. And if you're talking about a female ancestor, she's your mother. And it doesn't matter how far back it goes in history. Marcha, we look at genealogy, we can see that she is Asa's grandmother. And she was an idolater. And she had made an obscene image of Asherah. Asherah being a Canaanite fertility goddess. It's important again to note that when it came to the Israelites and their idolatry, it was never simply a matter of giving up God. Or very rarely it was a matter of giving up God and going after the idols. Rather, it was a matter of trying to have your cake and eat it too. Trying to have both God and idols. You cannot serve two masters, says Christ. But Marcha tried to. And so much of it was, of course, the ancient world, it's an agrarian society. And so we see again and again these fertility deities. They're about the fertility of the land. And of course, if you believe that fertility of the land, you've got to go to Baal and Asherah just in case. That's unbelief. It's saying God can't do this. God can't give us our daily bread. We have to at least have an insurance policy with Asherah. And so Asa, Asa's grandmother had such an insurance policy, if you will. And she was his grandmother. And she occupied what was a very important position at the court, that of 
queen mother. A position of authority. It's been a long time since we had a, a queen mother in this country. My, when I was a lad, I went to a little church where one of our church wardens had worked for her at one point, the old queen mother. And so the old queen mother visited the church once. And we had a certain respect for her. She was something of a, a national figure. But the queen mother in the ancient Near East had a, at least an official position. She was someone of some importance. And to occupy that position was a privilege. And Asa would on some level have looked up to his grandmother. She was a grandmother after all. And yet here she was doing something she should not have been doing. And he cut down the obscene image, crushed it and burned it by the brook Kidron. And he had removed her from her official position. Unfaithfulness. It would have been so easy for him to say, well, it's my family. I, I love my grandmother. I'll just give her, her a pass. It's so easy when it comes to family members to give them a pass. To do something that they ought not to be doing. Just because we want to, we want to be loving. But consecration means indeed looking at ourselves and our families. Being concerned not about other people only, but ourselves. Consecration. And then he brought into the house of God the things his father dedicated. That he himself had dedicated. And the implication is his father dedicated these things, but had not actually followed through with the dedication. His father had won, after all, by God's grace, a great victory. Abijah won a great victory. Trusting in God, we trust on you. And yet the spoils that he had dedicated, so these things are for God. And he never quite got around to actually giving them to God. Again, Abijah was one of the bad kings. But Asa followed through. He brought these things, silver and gold and utensils. As the dedication hymn puts it, take my silver and my gold, but most of all take myself and let me be ever, always, all for thee. Because consecration is ultimately personal. It's not about things. It's about self. It's I give myself to God. And it's an ongoing thing. Say Christian faith has a beginning but never ends. Consecration is an ongoing thing. It's not, as certain teachers in the past used to say, this idea that there's a single moment of consecration. But rather, the Christian life is about consecration. The Christian life is about, from that, that very first consecration, confessing, My God, I am thine. Lord, I am yours. We come forward again and again and again. John Calvin, the reformer, had a, a motto. He said, Lord, I offer you my heart, promptly and sincerely. And that's consecration. Lord, I offer you my heart. What's my heart got that God wants? Nothing. What have we got that God needs? Nothing. And yet, and yet, he says, give me your heart. And yet he says, come unto me. 
Not that he may receive, but that we may receive. That we may receive his grace to help in our time of need. Our consecration is not a legal thing. It's a gospel consecration. It's a consecration because Christ has consecrated himself for you and for me. This table here that is spread is spread because Christ consecrated himself. He gave himself for you and for me. And he gives himself this evening to you and to me. And when we, when we pray, when we take the elements, we don't do so because we are worthy. Because none of us are worthy. No one's ever worthy in themselves. No one's ever worthy. Not worthy, Lord, to gather up the crumbs that fall from thy table. Worthy to take in our hands the elements? No. No, it's for sinners. For guilty sinners. Christ says, take, eat. For sinners he has come. To sinners he still comes. Christ is for us, for you and for me. And our consecration is not a matter of something that we then say, And therefore I must do this, this and this. It's a matter of saying, you have loved me. He has loved me, I cried. He has suffered and died to redeem such a sinner as me. And it is in thankfulness, in gratitude for his grace and his mercy that any consecration happens. That he has first given himself to us. And so it was all Judah rejoiced with the oath. They had sworn with their heart and had sought him with all their soul. And he was found by them. And the Lord gave them rest all around. Christ has come. Christ offers himself. Christ gives himself. We have sought him. Weakly maybe. With faltering steps. But he has gladly been found of us. And he gives unto us his gift of peace. His grace, his mercy. Oh, may we know that mercy, that grace tonight. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.